Revelation 2, beginning at verse 18. Let's read the word of the Lord together. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Lord, I thank you for your presence that we've experienced as we've joined in worship. Now, for the next few moments, I ask for that special anointing that makes preaching easy and powerful. Give me clarity of thought and of speech. Give us ears to hear, not what the preacher says, but what the Spirit says in the midst of the preaching. I lift up other life-giving churches, and I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. And I pray especially for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. Lord, today my mind goes to one in particular that I spoke with his father this week. And I pray especially for that one, that the Holy Spirit will arrest his heart, but not his only, all of those who have wandered from the faith. Draw them back to you, O Lord. Don't let one of them be lost. I pray these things in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The question is one that has to be grappled with by every generation of believers. It's the question of how far to accept and adopt contemporary standards and practices. 
It's the question of where to draw the line between legitimate, compassionate concern on one side and legalism and cultural irrelevance on the other. It's the question of whether to look to the world for survival or to the God who supplies manna in the desert. When the Lord Jesus was walking among the golden lampstands in the book of the Revelation that he identifies as the churches, he came to the church at Thyatira and discovered that answering this question in a manner that pleased him was a struggle for them. The city of Thyatira was a former military outpost located in the broad fertile Lycus Valley some 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. It was a commercial town, especially known for the industry of dyeing fabric and the trade in woolen goods. The book of Acts chapter 16 introduces us to one of the citizens of Thyatira, a lady named Lydia, who is identified as a seller of purple. Thyatira was known for having an extraordinary number of professional trade guilds. These were associations for the mutual profit and pleasure of the people who were employed in various industries. Those guilds shared some of the characteristics of our modern-day unions, only they were even closer and tighter-knit, sort of a combination trade union and social service club. Because of its lack of allegiance to any particular deity, there was very little persecution of this Christian church that had been established in Thyatira. Compared to other places to whom the Lord Jesus writes letters, Thyatira was an easy place in which to be a follower of Jesus. Yet, even in the opening words that form the introduction to this letter, you can see there is something seriously wrong in this congregation. Pay attention to the way the risen Jesus describes himself in verse 18. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Well, I got to tell you, when you get a description like this, you know something serious is going on. And as we look through this letter, there are three things I want to hold up for your attention. Remember, these letters aren't just to the individual churches that are named. All of these letters were to be read by all of the churches, and they are letters that have a contemporary application to what's happening in our world today. First, I want you to see that the Lord talks about what he has detected. He begins by saying in verse 19, I know. In every one of the letters, Jesus never says, I have heard from a reliable source. He never says, I have read the reports you sent in to the denominational office. He never says, somebody was recently visiting and told me. Remember, he is the Lord who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He walks in the midst of his church. The information he has comes from firsthand observation. Look what he has detected for himself. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. (laughs) This is a church where the people are loving and caring for each other. This is a church that is faithful. This is a church where the the attendance is increasing, the budget is growing, the outreach ministries are expanding. 
Somebody visiting this church for the first time would admire the list of programs available and the number of service opportunities. They would applaud the love and concern and fellowship they saw demonstrated among the members. However, just under the surface, there is a core of rottenness in this church that negates every commendable thing the Lord has to say about it. It may have been invisible to the eyes of the casual observer, but it loomed large in the gaze of the risen Lord who sees all with the penetrating look from eyes like a flame of fire. Not only did Jesus write about something he detected, he also saw something in this church he detested. Jesus looked beyond the surface and wrote verse 20. I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Jesus begins by identifying the source of the problem. It's a particular person, a woman who has earned the name Jezebel. Now, that wasn't her given name, but she is called Jezebel by the Lord because her influence and her actions in this church were much like the work of the woman in the Old Testament by that name. Jezebel, you remember, was married to Ahab, the king of Israel. Though Ahab was the king, it was actually Jezebel who ran the palace. She was cunning, manipulative, selfish, deceptive, inhumane, and vindictive. It was Jezebel who threatened the prophet Elijah. Jezebel promoted the worship of the false god Baal in Israel. Jezebel had the prophets of Jehovah put to death while personally funding the prophets of Baal, even to the point of feeding them from the king's table. The name Jezebel stands for the height of wickedness and evil. And there was a woman in the church at Thyatira who was so wicked and so evil that she is called Jezebel by the Lord Jesus. Now that's a terrible indictment, but it gets worse. Not only was there this woman who embodied the spirit of Jezebel, but the greater tragedy was that the church tolerated her. In their misguided insistence on love and service, they were tolerating this wicked person that was opposed to the will and the plan and the purpose of God. Under the guise of calling herself a prophetess, she was teaching things that were contrary to God's word. She was leading people to commit acts that were in direct violation of the command and the law of God. And she was promoting them as if they were some higher spirituality and some new divine revelation. Instead of confronting and rebuking and rejecting her, the church tolerated her. They knew what was going on, but they wouldn't deal with it. They tolerated it all in the name of Christian love. The source of the problem was the woman Jezebel and the church's tolerance of her. But then pay attention to the seriousness of the problem. The end of verse 20 says she was teaching and leading the people so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, 
understand something. The Old Testament Jezebel didn't really mind if Israel worshipped Jehovah as long as they also worshipped Baal. What really bothered her was the insistence of the followers of Jehovah that he was the only God and to worship him meant that you put aside worship of everyone and everything else. In the same way, this woman called Jezebel at the church in Thyatira isn't trying to destroy the church. Rather, she's trying to bring into the Christian church new ways that would make it more palatable to the surrounding culture. She's trying to help it fit in and get along. What they failed to recognize was that these accommodating ways were in fact destructive of the faith because they were tearing away at foundational truths. The seriousness of the problem is described in two areas. First, she was teaching and leading the people to commit acts of immorality. And second, she was leading them to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, in our modern age, it's sometimes difficult to understand the seriousness of teaching people to eat things sacrificed to idols. But this was one of the great problems faced by the early church. You see, when a person made a sacrifice in a Greek temple, very little of the meat was burned on the altar. Sometimes all that was actually burned was a few hairs from the forehead of the animal. Following the sacrifice, the priest received a share of the meat of the animal, and the worshiper received the rest. With his portion, the worshiper did one of two things. He might hold a feast with his friends within the temple, or he might take the meat home and hold a feast in his own home. The dilemma for the followers of Jesus was this. Could a believer eat meat that had been consecrated to idols, whether in a temple or anywhere else? For the church, the answer was an unequivocal no. Abstaining from things offered to idols was one of the conditions on which the Gentiles received the right of entry into the Christian church. The problem in Thyatira was that this prohibition created an economic hardship. Because it meant that the follower of Jesus couldn't join any of the trade guilds because all the guilds had a common meal as a central part of their practice. Often these meals were held in a heathen temple and would include meat that had been offered to idols. If a man wasn't a member of a guild, it was going to cost him business contacts and it was going to cost him the opportunity to compete on a level playing field with others in his trade. Now, however, comes along this influential woman in the church who starts teaching these early believers as if she has a prophetic word. She's teaching, hey, it's really all right if you partake of this meat consecrated to idols. After all, you have to provide for your family. If this is the way the world does business, then we just have to go along to get along. God wants you to have your share. After all, isn't he the one who says he gives you the ability to make wealth? And you know the saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Or in this case, when in Thyatira, do as the Thyatirans. No wonder the Lord says, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. He isn't just telling about some person in history. He's trying to speak to those who are listening to this message today. The truth is that sometimes it's really difficult to be Christian in the contemporary business environment. It doesn't really matter what business you're in. There are always those who bend the rules and shade the truth in order to make the extra dollar. 
It's tough to stand on principles of character and integrity when it could mean the loss of the ability to provide for your family. It's difficult to stand in the face of that kind of pressure. See, it's, in, it's a challenge to navigate in a culture that insists that you call someone by their preferred pronoun even when it is contrary to their biology. See, if you don't affirm their self-identity, you're guilty in the workplace of harassment and you're subject to being reprimanded, fined, or even terminated. But if you acquiesce to their wishes, you join them in their deception and you violate the holy plan of God for their life. I wish it were not so, but the fact remains that the true church of the Lord Jesus will never be truly accepted by society. It never has been, and the divide is becoming more and more pronounced. The true church will either be persecuted by society, or else it will transform society. The truth, the true church of Jesus will always find itself at cross purposes with culture. We will never be politically correct. The true church continues to proclaim that lying and cheating and stealing and gossiping and gluttony and murder and adultery and fornication and homosexuality and bitterness and drunkenness and abortion are contrary to God's will and purpose. So, society calls it a choice. Society calls it a lifestyle. Society affirms them as acceptable. Society says we must be tolerant and embracing and affirming. God, however, still calls it sin. It would have been more convenient and certainly more profitable for the people in Thyatira to ignore God's laws, but it wasn't God's way. The church, hear me, the church must never call good what God calls evil. The church must always be loving, but it is never loving to embrace and encourage something that will lead to the destruction of someone's soul. This woman in Thyatira was also teaching and leading people to commit acts of immorality. You know, in the Old Testament, when Israel turned away from God to worship idols, she was said to be playing the harlot. She was an adulterous nation. She was unfaithful. Here now is a New Testament Jezebel teaching as if it were a prophetic word of new revelation that the Christian didn't need to be so exclusive in their worship of Jesus. After all, there are many paths to happiness. There are many paths to get to God as you define him or her. Don't be so narrow in your thinking, is what she was teaching. Here's the deal. The claim that gets true Christians in such trouble is not that Jesus is a savior. It isn't even that he is the chief of saviors. The claim that turns over the apple cart is that Jesus is the only Savior. It is the exclusivity of Jesus as Savior that gives rise to the claims of intolerance and bigotry. But the truth 
is rooted in the very words of Jesus. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm talking about the seriousness of the problem. Jezebel was teaching how to know the, quote, deep things of Satan, it says in verse 24. There was a philosophy in that day that in order to experience the full measure of the grace of God, you had to experience the full depths of sin. The teaching was that it was a duty to sin so that you might be able to experience God's full forgiveness. It's no wonder Jesus looks at this church with eyes like a flame of fire and feet of burnished bronze. It's no wonder he detested what was going on in his church. Instead of getting down in the gutter and wallowing in the depths of depravity with lost humanity, the church calls out there is hope in the midst of despair. There are answers in the midst of confusion. There is light in the midst of darkness. There is freedom in the midst of bondage. There is forgiveness in the midst of guilt. There is wholeness in the midst of brokenness. What this world needs is a church that will call out to them and will demonstrate by its actions that a better way can be found and a better way can be lived. A church that will reach out a hand to them and pull them up onto the right road. We don't need a church that's going to beat up on them and tell them how dirty, rotten, low-down, good-for-nothing sinners they are. We need somebody that will say, there is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness, there's a better path. This world needs a church that will brush them off and help clean them up, point them in the right direction, and then walk beside them as a support until they can gain the strength to march on in their own toward the eternal city of God. The warning to each and every one of us is Romans 12, 2. Where the Apostle Paul writes and says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The Holy Spirit is trying to break in on somebody today who has been playing around and dabbling around with the things of the world. He wants you to remember James 4, 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He wants you to remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. The word of the Lord to you is Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days. This letter reveals the source of the problem and the seriousness of the problem. The Lord also speaks in verse 21 about how he detests the stubbornness of the person. He says, I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. 
I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that God is long-suffering. I'm thankful that He is plenteous in mercy. I'm thankful that His compassion toward us is as high as the heavens above. I'm thankful that He knows our frame like we read at the beginning of this service and remembers we are but dust. I'm thankful He has not repaid us according to justice, but according to mercy. Is anybody thankful for that today? God has given Jezebel time, but she's refused to repent. She refused to change her way. She stubbornly resisted God. Today, I just believe the Lord's trying to break through to somebody. He's trying to get you to understand that he is indeed gracious and long-suffering. But there are limits. Some of you have heard message after message, teaching after teaching, but you still refuse to repent. Some of you have had the touch of God on your life. You felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but you've ignored it. Some of you have experienced adversity, and it wasn't the devil. It was God trying to get your attention trying to turn you around, but you've resisted. The unmistakable message of verses 22 and 23 is that if you continue to stubbornly resist, if you refuse to repent, there will come a point when he will no longer deal with tenderness and gentleness, but with judgment. The Lord Jesus was walking in the midst of the church at Thyatira. He detected some things about the church. There were some things he detested. Now, finally, I want you to see some things he determined. Even though there was a major problem in the church, the Lord Jesus knew that not everyone was like Jezebel in the church. Not everyone was fooled by her. Not everyone was listening to her so-called prophecies. Not everyone was following her teaching. So to those who were still holding to the true faith and balancing it with true love, the Lord has a word of encouragement. There are three promises the Lord has determined for those who remain faithful to him. And there are three promises the Lord makes to you when you remain faithful to him. The first one is patience. He says in verses 24 and 25, But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, watch this. What you have, hold fast until I come. Would you hear that as a word from the Lord to you today? You've been holding on to the truth. You haven't denied the name of the Lord. You haven't tried to plumb the depths of evil. You haven't followed after trying to know the deep things of Satan. You haven't been swayed by all of the culture stuff that tries to come against you. But instead, you've been trying to know the deep things of God. And to you, the Lord just says, hold on. Hold on. I know it's tough out there. I know, I know. Oh, I know. I hear. I see. But hold on. 
the things that are going to come upon those who have followed after the world, they're not going to come upon you. You're not going to have to worry. Why do we read this book and have such fear? You don't have to worry. You're not going to have to bear any other burden. When this thing is over, you're going to come out on top. You stay true. Keep pressing on. Be patient. Don't be weary in well-doing. It's almost over. Hold on. The Lord is coming. He's getting ready to execute his vengeance upon the evildoers, but he's also getting ready to shower his faithful ones with help and strength and deliverance. Not only has he determined to give patience, but then the letter says he's determined to give power. It's in verses 26 and 27. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. Let me tell you where we are. Jesus is coming again. He's going to rapture his church. At the end of the age, there is one called Antichrist who is going to arise and wage war against the chosen people of God, specifically against the nation of Israel. And it's going to look like God's people are hopelessly outnumbered, and it will spell the end of those precious people. But just when it looks like all is lost, lo, there will come from heaven a white horse, and the one who sits on it is called Faithful and True. He's going to return to this earth with a host of heaven's army riding with him. He's going to defeat those who seek to destroy his people. He's going to bind the devil. He's going to remove him from influencing the people of this earth for a thousand years. He's going to establish a peaceable kingdom kingdom on this earth. And here's the good news. Those who have held to a true faith, those who won't give up, those who will hold on, those who will keep loving and keep serving and keep persevering and remain faithful until the end, all of those are going to overcome. He's going to give them power to sit and rule with him in that peaceable kingdom. Jesus has determined to give patience. He has determined to give power. And finally, the letter says that Jesus has determined to give provision. In verse 28, the Lord Jesus writes, and I will give him the morning star. Now, later on in the book, Jesus says in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What this tells me is that the provision Jesus gives to those who remain faithful is Jesus himself. Do you have any understanding what that means? Do you have any idea what you have when you have Jesus? I want to tell you, when you have Jesus, you have the bread of life. When you have Jesus, you have the light of the world. You have the door to the sheepfold. You have the good shepherd. You have the true vine. You have the way, the truth, and the life. You have the strong tower of safety. You have the resurrection and the life. You have the healer of broken hearts. 
You have the repairer of the breach. You have the mender of shattered dreams. You have comfort in time of sorrow. You have the helper in time of need. You have the provider in time of want. I tell you, when you have Jesus, you have the fairest of 10,000. You have the firstborn of many brethren. You have the preeminent one by whom all things exist and in whom all things hold together. You have the God of all grace. You have the redeemer. You have the restorer of the lost heritage. You have the all-sufficient provider. You have the wonderful counselor. You have the prince of peace. You have the lion of the tribe of Judah that has prevailed. You have the triumphant Lord of glory. You have the king, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. You have the savior of the world. That and so much more is what you have when you have Jesus. That's the provision he promises to those who overcome. Give him praise in this house today. Jesus in all of his fullness, in all of his majesty, in all of his glory. shout right now. Praise be to God forever. If you repent, you will not get wrath and judgment. If you repent, you will not be cast away from his presence. If you repent, if you turn to him, trust in him and him alone, surrender your life to him. Hold on. Don't deny the true faith. Stop compromising with the world system. If you overcome, then his promise is he'll give you himself, never to be lost again. Stand with me, please. Lord Jesus. We are not ignorant of the fact that it is difficult to stand in the face of a culture that's gone crazy. We are not ignorant of the fact that we are pressed on every side to conform to things that don't even make sense. If ever we needed your wisdom if ever we needed your strength, we need it now. So that's what I pray for this congregation today. Forgive us, Lord, for those times when we've 
when we've just caved. The pressure was too strong. And give us the courage to stand strong no matter what. Give us the faith to believe that even if it costs us in the short term, the long term is so much more worth it. And it will be worth it all. people today, Lord. Help your people today. Help your people. In the face of adversity, in the face of conflict, in the face of persecution, help your people. Have mercy on your people, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Pastor Larry, there's an old Sunday school song that just comes to my mind right now. We used to sing uh, probably in the key of C. I have decided to follow Jesus I have decided to follow Jesus I have Sing that again as your testimony. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have like this. No turning 
Why don't you tell somebody, hold on. Come on, tell them, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. it will be worth it all when we see Jesus let me let, I don't know if you know this or not it will be worth it all when we see Jesus life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ, one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see at all. Just hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Don't deny the faith. Don't cave. Hold on. 